got your Bible, you can open up to Psalm chapter 22. Uh, Psalm chapter 22. And you might be thinking, uh, Psalm 22, what kind of an Easter message is that? You know, where's he going to be going with this? This isn't, man, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Um, that's what I'm used to hitting up during a good Easter resurrection sermon. And, uh, you know, Psalm 22, uh, we studied it Friday, Good Friday at the, at the message. Uh, it's been known as the Psalm of the Cross. And we're going to go through just some select phrases in the Psalm. You'll see why it's called the Psalm of the Cross, why it, it takes you to Golgotha, it takes you to Mount Calvary and to what Jesus went through uh, some 2,000 years ago. Uh, for a little alliteration, we have uh, poetry, passion, and promulgation in this passage where we see the psalmist writing all that is in his heart, although he'll never experience it, he's writing of someone else. We see the passion of the Lord Jesus in this, uh, in this psalm. And then we see the, the, uh, the promoting of it throughout the whole world. Charles Spurgeon said, This psalm must be expounded word for word, entire and in every respect of Christ only, without any allegory, trope, or anagogue. And so as we read this, you know, we're really reading uh, the words of Jesus and the thoughts of Jesus, uh, not only on Good Friday, but uh, Saturday and Sunday as well. It's going to be interesting. We're going to be reading things and you're going to say, hey, is David writing this about himself or is someone else? It's the same question the Ethiopian eunuch asked in Acts chapter 8. Is Isaiah writing this of himself or about someone else? And it says that Philip began in this passage, Isaiah 53, and then went through the scripture preaching Jesus and the gospel of salvation. Uh, Eusebius of Caesarea, church father, said Psalm 22 is a prophecy of the passion of the Christ and the vocation of the Gentiles. And so let's look at it. We're going to go through verse 21 super fast. We're really just hop, uh, hop skipping and jumping to some key phrases. And then from 21 on, we'll see why this would be an Easter message, a resurrection message. So Psalm 22, verse 1, it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Does that sound familiar to anybody? We're in the Psalms, you know, but I feel like all of a sudden I'm in Matthew, you know, or something like that. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, you guys know how it is when you have a song in your heart or you grew up and you were listening. Maybe you grew up in the church and you know those Sunday school songs that teach you things about the Bible. And, you know, they just come to your mind when you least expect it. Or they come to your mind when you're going through what the song's about. Well, the song's about Jesus. He grew up singing it, you know, in Sabbath school growing up. And now it's upon his mind so that when he's on the cross, and the, the judgment of God towards sinners is being placed upon him at Calvary, he would sing the song he grew up singing, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's set, the psalm starts out that it's set to the tune, the deer of the dawn. I don't know if anybody knows that that one at all, play it on your keyboard, you know? But um, some of you are hunters, you're like, I sing deer of the dawn every fall. You know, I'm just like, all right, calm down a little bit. Um, and then if you hop in, hop, hop along there in verse two, we see that he cries in the daytime and then leapfrog and in the night season, 
but you're silent. So we know when Jesus was on the cross, he cried out from the cross and it was daytime. But we also knew uh, at noon what happened, you know, that, that the sun was blotted out. It became as dark as night. I don't know if you've seen the hilarious YouTube video of the, you know, the animals that can talk and there's like a stork and it's like nighttime, daytime, nighttime, daytime. You know, that's essentially what was happening. People were like, what is it, daytime or nighttime here? Uh, and the psalmist says, I cried out to you in the daytime uh, and in uh, the nighttime. I'm not silent. Go on and uh, look at verse six. But I am a worm and no man. Oh, isn't this just a great Easter message so far? I know what you guys, I was hoping we'd get a good worm message on Easter Sunday. Uh, what's wonderful about the Hebrew language is it's very poetic. And so it's perfect for the Psalms because when the writer writes about being a worm, he uses the Hebrew word tophath. And this worm, the tophath worms, is a silk worm or a glow worm. Uh, but really, the word even can be translated the crimson worm. And what we know about this specific worm is that it would be crushed and the, the juice that squeezed out of this worm would be used to make uh, crimson and purple fabric for royalty to wear. And this tolath worm, when it knew that it was about to have babies, it would go and it would climb up onto a tree or a post and it would fasten itself to the post. And then when it was going to give birth, it would essentially combust and explode. It's, it's kind of gruesome. It's, I don't know if you've read the gospels of Jesus dying on the cross. Also gruesome, right? But this worm would explode and its young would feast upon its body and have life and be given life. So kind of sad. It never got to know mom, you know, uh, on the other hand was given life from the sacrifice of the mother. And then the studies are the creation Re research Institute has studied this worm and shows us that, uh, these little worms, uh, would be stained the color and be given the color of the tophath worm. And then both the worm, the baby worms and the post or tree would also be stained with this color. And then as a couple days went by, this crimson would turn white and flake away in the wind. And so what you know from Isaiah, it says, come, let us reason together. Even though your sins are as crimson or scarlet, I will make you as white as snow. So this is an incredible thing. We studied it Good Friday. So when Jesus, or when David says, when Jesus might be saying, I'm a worm and no man despised among the people, it's speaking of his great condescension down to the level of humanity and a suffering servant, even to the point of death on the cross. But he also is speaking about how those who feast upon what I've done upon this tree, like we just did at communion, will have life and a future and a hope and will be made as white as snow. So I'm a worm and no man. Look at verse seven. We're just leapfrogging. All those who see me ridicule me. They shoot out the lip. They shake the head saying, he trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. Now you might be thinking, wait, am I, oh, I'm a little delusional. Am I in Psalm, am I in Psalms right now or am I in Matthew right now? Because I've heard these phrases before and it's all prophecy that was fulfilled that was speaking of the Messiah, the deliverer who would come. If you look in verse 12, many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. 
They gape at me with their mouth like a raging and roaring lion. We know that the bulls of Bashan were from the east of the Sea of Galilee, the land of the Canaanites. And these were just these wild animals, not moving in nice herds, all organized, you know, like cattle. Uh, they would go around and they would be seeking uh, critters to stomp and to, to thrust through with their horns, these oxen. And... Uh, and then they would eat their prey. So these are just these crazy bulls that were just, you know, carnivorous. And, and some believe that it's speaking of the spiritual realm that was happening around Jesus at the cross when uh, Satan thought he was getting the victory. No doubt there were many forces of darkness that were, you know, also shouting out the lip or shooting out the lip at Jesus as well. Goes on to say, verse 14, I'm poured out like water. All my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot shirt. My tongue clings to my jaws. You brought me to the dust of death. And so even there, you see, this is all stuff that happened at the cross. We see that Jesus was poured out like water. The gospel says as a test to see if Jesus was really dead on the cross, the Roman thrust Jesus through his side with a spear. And what came out of Jesus? Blood and water, right? Medical studies have shown this is evidence of the complete collapse of the heart cavity. People who've tried to make it cute have said that Jesus literally died of a broken heart for you uh, and for sin. Uh, but there he was poured out like water. Just as the psalmist says, it speaks of his dryness and how he was dried up in the Middle Eastern sun. Uh, those of you who have ever done hard physical activities in the heat uh, know what it's like to be thirsty. Jesus cried out from the cross, I thirst. And it's like he's been brought to the dust of death. His bones are out of joint. Uh, medical studies on what would happen to a crucified victim is that they would actually die of suffocation before they would die of anything else. It was because they had to push against the nail in their feet and step up to open up their lung, uh, chest cavity so that they could receive air. Then they would sink back down, doing that for hours and hours at a time. Eventually the shoulders would come out of joint and they would end up dying of suffocation. In fact, how the Romans would finally kill people that it was time for them to go, they would break their legs so that they couldn't push up on the nail and the feet any longer. And so here you just have a picture of the agony of the cross, the bones, uh, the staring. As you look at uh, verse 16, dogs have surrounded me. That speaks of non-Jewish Gentiles. Roman soldiers were called dogs. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. And then here's this phrase that's just incredibly astounding, written a thousand years before Jesus came on the scene. Of course, we know he was always on the scene, if you know what I'm saying. And he says this phrase, have you jumped ahead and seen it already? They pierced my hands and my feet. This is 200 years before the Syrians even invented crucifixion as a form of execution. This is uh, 800 years before the Romans would perfect it as their preferred method of execution. And a thousand years before Jesus, where the Psalm of the Cross, Jesus's 14 times great grandfather writes of his grandson, my hands and my feet, they pierced. It's a messianic psalm. It's the psalm of the cross, the psalm of crucifixion. In verse 17, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. 
They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Does that sound familiar to anybody? Have you ever read the story of Jesus? Have you read the Gospels? Have you read that the Roman soldiers did just that? And I don't have time to get into it. It's not the point of my message today, but you, there are mathematicians from Westmont College who've done the studies that the probability of Jesus fulfilling just eight prophecies that are messianic um, are just astronomical. Um, and for him to fulfill all of them, just incredible. D- listen to past teachings. We've got it. I can send it your way. But the fact that just what we've read here so far, the Psalm of the Cross, things even outside of Jesus's control. You think he was up there? Hey, come over here real quick. Do you mind taking my garment and going over there and gambling for it? Come on. It's prophesied. You got to do it. Somebody do it. You know, it's like these are things that were outside of Jesus's control as they were done in fulfillment of the prophecies. And we read through uh, verse 21 at the Good Friday service and You know, if that was where the study ended, it'd be a pretty depressing psalm. It'd be a pretty depressing Easter, wouldn't it? Oh, man, this was agonizing. That's hard to read. You know, something interesting about a worm in there. But, you know, this is tough stuff. This is rough stuff. And in the midst of all that we were leapfrogging through there, the psalmist keeps speaking out things about, I'm crying out to the Lord, where are you? Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from the voice of my crying? And, and then it just seems like it's, it's over. But it's not over. The Psalms just over halfway done. And the end of our verse here has just an incredible statement. Four words. You have answered me. You have answered me. You guys, this is where we go from Good Friday to Easter morning. It's at this end of verse 21, these four words in the midst of all the pain, in the midst of the anguish, in the midst of the crucifixion, in the midst of people being against me, you have answered me. And it's at this point that the whole Psalm changes, that it goes from suffering to glory. It goes from prayer to praise. It goes from sob to psalm, from the horrible reality of death on the cross to the wonderful truth that Messiah Jesus is alive. Remember what Spurgeon says, this ought to be read that we are reading the words of Jesus, the thoughts of Jesus, the heart of Jesus on Good Friday, Saturday and Sunday, Easter Sunday as well. I've got a couple of tweets that I'm going to quote from you today. I've been kind of into Twitter since last April. I'll see if you can wonder why. But uh, I don't tweet much just because I'm scared of the haters. But anyways, but I, I read them a lot. And I've got, I think, four for you today that were just incredible about Easter weekend. Kevin DeYoung wrote today, Jesus knew that he was going to die and that he wouldn't stay dead. Friday was dark and sad. Saturday was stone cold silent, but Sunday, the third day was not just another day or another week. It was another age. The biggest story had turned a page. The world would never be the same. And so right now we have the turning of a page in the Psalm, in the story, in the hope of the Messiah, in the hope for us. And it's in these four words, you have 
answered me. The well-respected preacher and teacher Alec Moitier ends his devotional commentary at verse 21 with two exclamation points. You have answered me. And Matthew Henry wrote in the 1500s, the savior now speaks as risen from the dead. The first words of complaint we know from verse one were used by Christ himself on the cross. Why have you forsaken me? But the first words of the triumph are expressly applied to Jesus in the resurrection. The statement you have answered me indicates that Christ has been delivered by the power of death. The event that redeems his people from the power of death and begins the process of the restoration of creation deserves deserves exuberant worldwide praise, the Christ-exalting commentary writes. That Jesus has conquered death, that Psalm 22 verse 21 ends with, you have answered me, deserves exuberant worldwide praise. You have answered answered me from good friday the pain and anguish to does anybody know what they call the day after good friday oh there's one in every group so smart around here in crook county yeah saturday uh also known as silent saturday or if you got a little whistle when you talk silent okay what uh silent saturday or holy saturday uh, it was Billy Graham's grandson, Tulian Chavidjian, who wrote on Saturday, the best reminder that the silence of God doesn't equal the absence of God. Silent Saturday. There's something going on during Saturday. Doesn't it always feel like we're here, we're, we're worshiping, we're remembering on Good Friday. Then there's like a whole Saturday where we're like, I don't know what to do with my hands, you know? And, and then all of a sudden, oh yeah, but then we got... Um, then we got Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, Easter. Yes, thrilling. Silent Saturday or Holy Saturday. It's, I believe we see it happening What uh, in verse 1 here. Uh, that There's something happening during Silent Saturday that just astonishes us. What was happening, maybe the most wonderful hinge verse in verse 21 in all of the Bible that there's something happening, there's dark and tough stuff happening. And then at the end of verse 21, there's a hinge happening. And I believe as you hear the hinge squeak, we're in the midst of silent Saturday and we get into verse 21 and 22 and the page of the book turns or the door of the chapter turns and it's something incredible. I'm going to get into it. I'm, I'm skipping over something in my notes that was valuable, but we will get to it. It's in verse 22, where he says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. So something happens where he's in agony. He's wondering where God is at. At the end of verse 21, you have answered me and something happened where now he is declaring the praise of God in the midst of the congregation. We've called it the hinge verse. Another thing that I've heard it called by theologians is what's called the J curve. Okay. Bear with me. A guy named, uh, Paul Miller. I got to hear him speak in Portland once and he introduced me to this concept called the J curve. So if you're a graph, if you're into graphs, you'll appreciate this. Okay. Uh, because what we have is all throughout scripture, 
We have suffering, anguish, and death. For instance, in our psalm today, we've got all kinds of the crucifixion account and the agony and people mocking Jesus and casting lots for his clothing and demonic stuff happening. And we have the death. We have the pain. We have what looks like a nosedive into catastrophic failure. But whenever you see that there's pain and anguish, God is present on silent Saturday. Okay, he's moving in the midst of our agony and he's going to work a curve in the situation for those who trust in him. That is resurrection life and resurrection power on good Friday. We were at a nosedive, weren't we? We, it was a dark, pensive, somber, sad moment on Saturday or on, on Friday on Saturday. We didn't really know what was going on. It was silent. Saturday, but God was working something out to where he was going to pull back on the yoke of the airplane of our destiny. And he was going to yank us back up into resurrection power and life. It's the J curve. Okay. If you look in Philippians chapter two, verses five through 10, let's see if you can catch the J J curve when it talks about Jesus's situation. He says, let this mind be in you, which is in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation. Okay, so here's a picture. Jesus is on his throne. And then he's going to condescend to becoming a human being and a man. Okay, so Jesus is on his throne, right? God, He's God. He created the world. And he is going to take on the mission of saving sinners. Okay, so what happened? Verse 7 tells us he made himself of no reputation. He took the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men found an appearance of man. He humbled himself. He became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross, agony, pain, humiliation. He's about to crash. Pull up, pull up, pull up. Okay. Are you catching it? And then it says, therefore God has highly exalted him and given them the name, which is above every name that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of those in heaven, of those on earth and of those under the earth. And so what the resurrection, what Easter Sunday does for us is it gives us hope that whatever trial we're in, whatever humiliation or agony or pain or disease or relationship struggle or conflict, demonic oppression, whatever it is, that suffering will not win, will not have the final word. You might think that God is silent. He's moving people. He is pulling you up out of the nosedive of sin and death. And he has made a way for you to be likened with Christ, not only in the suffering and death, but also in the power of the resurrection. When you go to Philippians chapter three, you go to verses 10 through 11 and Paul says, and uh, do I only have 10 and 11? Great. Uh, Well, I'll just give you a summary of what just is said before that. Paul says, I count all things lost. All right. I count all of my pedigree, everything that I have that would make me something in the sight of God. I count all of that as loss and I humble myself so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And so what we have is he's saying, I'm giving up it all. I'm fellowshipping with Jesus in his sufferings. I'm being conformed to his death. If by any means I may maintain the resurrection of the dead. And he says at the first of verse 10 there, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. 
So when you read the New Testament, when you read the scriptures, and it just seems like it is going south for everyone in the story, even though they fear God, where are you, God? You just need to know there's light. The day is coming. The resurrection's coming. And that is nonetheless true, or especially true, on Easter weekend. Easter weekend, Good Friday, agony, pain, betrayal, all of the sad things that happened that we know happened during the trial, during the false witnesses, during the scourgings and the floggings. And I've done the Google earth footage and I've walked the step myself to know that Jesus walked some two and a half miles the night that he was uh, going to be crucified. This guy had a rough day that Thursday and Friday. Okay. But then there's this moment where it's kind of like there's a turn in the trajectory and we don't quite know it. All we know is you have heard me. There's a hinge happening. There's a curve happening. And can I submit something to you of what I think is happening? Okay. Uh, as you look at our verse, verse 22, it says, I will declare your name to my brethren in the midst of the assembly. I will praise you. As I was reading the Psalm and I'm just reading it, my mind went somewhere that I had to be really cautious with, okay? There's a little rule when you're studying the Bible that if you have a great thought and idea, but nobody else is mentioning it, then you're probably wrong, okay? And you should just back out of that tailspin right there, okay? Um, and so as I was just like, man, I, this is just what I'm sensing. And, and as I studied, I found that I may not be wrong, and then I found, okay, there's some other people that agree with me. Okay, so a little bit of vindication this morning. I was like, whew, okay, and let me, let me tell you where I'm going with this. That silent Saturday was not, Saturday, was not silent at all. It was Saturday. It was not silent. What do I believe was happening on silent Saturday? I believe that Jesus was straight up preaching it, okay? That, and I got two verses to go to with you. Let's look at Ephesians chapter four, verse eight. We're going to read through verse 10 here. When he says he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is also the one who ascends far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And so I believe what the apostles creed says is true, that Jesus descended down into Hades or Sheol. Okay. That after he died, his spirit went down into the belly of the earth, if you will. And what happened there? I'll tell you what didn't happen. He did not suffer the anguish of hellfire there. Okay, I don't believe that that's what happened to Jesus there, but I believe that some preaching happened down in, in shale. If you look at first Peter chapter three, verse 18, it says Christ suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the spirit by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. Uh, when once the divine long suffering waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight souls were saved through water. Guys, this is a little bit mysterious stuff. If you're new to church and you're new to Calvary chapel, I'm really sorry. Cause sorry. Cause we're going to geek out for just a second. 
What happened during Silent Saturday? I believe that Jesus went down into the belly of the earth. He went down to hell or Sheol or Hades. Now, the Sheol of, uh, of the passage that we're in was not hell like you think of it. It was a place where all of the dead from all of past history went to. And it was divided in half. There was a great chasm. You can read about it in Luke chapter 16. And on one side of the chasm was like a hell type place that you think of. We see that uh, there was a man who was, was there, a very rich man who would just, would be so thankful if just a drop of water dripped off of somebody's finger onto his tongue would just help with the agony that he is over on this side of torment. But on the other side of the great chasm was a place called, does anybody know it? Abraham's bosom. Okay. They used to name things different back then, you know, like that sounds awesome, you know? Um, but, uh, so Abraham's bosom and it was a place of rest. It was a place of peace. It was a place where, uh, the sins of the world had not yet been atoned for. And so all of the fathers and and mothers who were ahead of us, like in Hebrews 11, the hall of fame, the hall of faith, those that looked forward to the cross and looked forward to the Messiah, that he would shed his blood for the remission of their sins. They couldn't yet go into the presence of God because their sins had not yet been atoned for. And so they were in a place of waiting. And it was there that Jesus preached the gospel. Okay. Now on the good side, he told everybody it's been accomplished. It is finished. And, uh, and he just got everyone stoked for the great, you know, rapture sort of thing that was going to happen. And over on the other side, he said, you guys should have listened. You were so prideful and arrogant and you thought you could do it on your own. And you thought you needed no rescue and you did it your way. And you will go ahead and for the rest of eternity, you're going to think about how you said no to God. Well, the fool says in his heart, no to God. And he preached to the spirits, Peter says, even the spirits that were there in the days of Noah, who rejected the ark of salvation that would save them from the wrath of God through the flood. Well, now they've rejected in, it was synonymous that they rejected the ark of the Lord at the cross that was going to save them from the wrath for all eternity. And then he went back to the other side and he said, let's get out of here, brothers. And then he ascended and this crazy thing happened where when he resurrected, Have you read the gospel account where all of a sudden a lot of the graves in Jerusalem were opened up and dead people came back to life and started cruising around Jerusalem? Have you ever wondered what was going on there? I submit my hypotheses. Okay. But I also believe that the souls of those individuals who've been waiting outside of the presence of God, now their sins have been atoned for, and now they can go into the presence of Jesus, and they're there right now. And they're waiting, see last week's message, the rapture of the church where the bodies will be met up up with them in heaven. Okay, so you guys are sensible people. You have your own Bibles. Feel free to study it on your own. I submit it all very humbly. But when I get to verse 22, I'm reading it. I'm going, you've answered me. You've shown yourself faithful. Now I'm going to go to the assembly of my brothers who are waiting for me. And I'm going to tell them it's been done. Okay. Now, just to prove that I'm not a total idiot, heathen, I'm an idiot. Hope I'm not a heathen, but let me share uh, from a commentary here where uh, J.B. Caird makes the novel suggestion that Jesus' descent was his return at Pentecost to give his spirit to the church. 
But ingenious as this is, the natural interpretation of the words from 1 Peter chapter uh, 4, the natural interpretation of the words suggests that his descent preceded his ascent rather than followed it. The early fathers understood this as a reference to his descent into Hades. They associated it with 1 Peter 3.19 and Ephesians 4.8 when they interpreted his spoiling or harrowing of hell. I know, right? You guys, silent Saturday when all seems quiet and all you have to do is decorate your eggs for a great hunt the next day. There's so much going on and so much to be rejoicing in. He, Jesus, led captivity captive. Said, let's get out of here. Let's go to the presence of the father. And then he gave gifts to men on the day of Pentecost. And it all blends together. And you may not totally get it or, or, or you may not agree. That's totally fine. But let's get into the rest of the rockin' passage that comes after Silent Saturday, right? Let's get into eager Easter or whatever it is that you want to call it. Okay, look at verse 23. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you descendants of Jacob, glorify him and fear him. All you offspring of Israel. So by the way, remember, this is Jesus talking. This is Jesus resurrected from the dead. It's Easter Sunday. And he says, if you fear the Lord, it's time to praise him. If you honor the Lord, if you have reverence for the Lord, it's time to just unchain your tongue and start worshiping Jesus because he's worth it. If you're reading this right now and you're like, wait a minute, I'm not a descendant of Jacob and I'm not an offspring of Israel. So does this apply to me? The beauty of the gospel is it does apply to you. Galatians chapter three says, all who believe in Jesus are blessed with being sons of Abraham. And so Jesus himself tells us uh, to worship. Jesus is acting as the true worship leader. Adam did a great job today leading the worship team. But isn't it crazy? Jesus is the true worship leader. He's the chief musician who's calling the whole church to praise and to glorify God. Charles Spurgeon said, the church continually magnifies Jehovah for manifesting himself in the person of Jesus. And Jesus himself leads the song and is both presentor and preacher in his church. And so in verse 23, you who fear the Lord start lifting up the praise to God for the resurrection. Look in verse 24, for he has not despised nor abhorred the affliction, the afflictions of the afflicted, nor has he hidden his face from him. But when he cried to him, he heard. So do you remember the first 21 verses, how Jesus on the cross was crying out in agony and he just felt like no one was hearing him. Where are you father? Why have you forsaken me? And then at the end of verse 21, you have those four words. You have answered me. And then he's able to sing with the church. Now he's at this place where he's singing with the brethren and he's leading the church to sing that the father does not despise the affliction of the afflicted. That means something for you today. You are suffering. Are you not? You know that Buddhism was created because uh, Buddha basically saw the suffering that was in the world. And so he created a system where he could try to rid all of life from suffering because he realized all of life is suffering. Okay. I'm not quoting Buddha as if he totally had the market on anything, right? The guy perished. Okay. And we need to follow Jesus. What I'm saying is the world out there knows suffering and hurting is real. 
You know that. I know you guys. I know your situation. I know the pain that you're going through. And you need to know today, Jesus is telling you in this psalm that the father does not despise the affliction that you're going through. And he hears the cries of the afflicted. The Gospel Coalition tweeted out this morning, when my own story takes a dark turn, I know it's not the end because I know how God treats his servants. I know how the father treats his son. The J curve is the process that we're in, you guys. You are in the time of struggle. You're in the time of depravity. You're in the time of pain. You're in the time of hurting and betrayal, but have great cheer Jesus has overcome the world. Matthew Henry said, let the tempted and distressed believer cheerfully expect a happy end of every trial. Are you there right now? Maybe coming in, you weren't. Maybe coming in, you're like, this is it. This is the thing that's going to end me. This is the thing that's going to destroy me. And I would just say, I would echo Henry from 600 years ago or whatever it was you can cheerfully expect a happy end to this trial. And Easter Sunday gives us proof of that. Verse 25, my praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. In this Psalm, you can't help but pick up the observation that Jesus loves the public praises of the saints. And it was Spurgeon that says, Jesus thinks with pleasure over the great congregation. I've got to tell you today. If you're a Christer Christian, and that is someone who comes to church on Christmas and Easter, we call it Christer. You are being robbed. You're being robbed. You guys, God has not saved you to be a little lone sheep dancing off over by yourself out there where all the wolves can get you. Jesus has saved you. The great shepherd has saved you from your sins to be a part of the great flock and the great fold. We have so much in common. We have so many ways that we can protect each other and be there for each other and encourage one another that you are just being absolutely robbed. And if you haven't been pounced on yet and led astray by the wolves, watch out because it's coming. If Jesus himself loves and values the great congregation that he calls his bride, I think that you should probably love his bride too. And so my great exhortation for you today is that God wants you to be a part of the family. Welcome to Calvary Chapel. We'd love to have you hop in with dedication and watch and see what the Lord will do. He'll change your life. You'll never be the same. You'll be a part of the family of God. And Jesus just says, hey, I'm going to praise the father in the midst of the great assembly. It's going to happen now. It's going to happen in heaven. That's what heaven is. If you don't like it now, you're not going to like it then. So you might as well get your feet wet. Okay. Come on in. The water's fine. Okay. Verse 26, the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. Let your heart live forever. So who are those that come and eat and partake? It's those who are poor. And yes, true. The the real poor, those that are of the poverty of this world, that are just meek and lowly and in a place of poverty, there is hope for you to come. Come to the table and feast upon what Jesus has done. But we're going to see in a little bit, it's not only for the poor, but it's for the rich also. But Jesus says to the poor in verse 26, hey, you who are poor today and you come to this place kind of dragging yourself in with your scabs on the ground and you're just looking for some help and some refuge 
You found it here. Let your heart live forever. Because of the resurrection, the New Testament says that Jesus is the first fruits of all who will come after him. That tells us that he rose from the dead and it's the same power that's going to raise us from the dead because of what Jesus has done. And we can say to one another, let your heart live forever. Are you of the poor and the meek who come to the table to feast upon what Jesus has prepared? Let your heart live forever. 27. And this is what begins a pretty heavy missionary passage. Okay. The Messiah is a missionary Messiah. And he says, all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Spurgeon said in reading this verse, one is struck with the Messiah's missionary spirit. And you know what? That's something that's lacking in the American church today. We are so about our own prosperity, us for no more, shut the door, just got to live for my family, maybe my local church, or maybe America, red, white, and blue, woo, you know, um, and we forget God's heart is for every nation to know and enjoy the salvation that came through what Jesus did on Good Friday, Silent Saturday, and Eager Easter, okay? The whole world needs to know it. The ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And when Jesus said this in his heart, or when David wrote it, where do you think they were thinking when they were penning it, when the pen hit the paper, when Jesus said it, David wrote it at the ends of the earth. What do you think? Like he probably didn't have a globe. I'm going to go to Hawaii, you know, whatever, like didn't have the map that kind of just the other day at the map, Laney Tatum got up on the chair and was like, over here's Russia and over here's Russia what's going on? You know, I'm like, I love to wrap it, you know, but what do you think? What do you think? The ends of the earth shall remember what Jesus has done and turn to the Lord. I wonder if they had Prineville, Oregon in mind. I mean, that's pretty much the ends of the earth, right? Like, right. Global outreach came all the way over here. It's really astounding. Actually, all the families of the nation shall worship before you. The Christ exalting commentary in the new Testament says a missionary and evangelist mandate pulsates at the heart of the Messiah King. That same mandate must seize our hearts as well. Scottish John Stott says we need to become global Christians with a global vision for we have a global God. And it says at the end of the verse that all of the families of the nations shall worship before him. John Piper said families intended by God uh, is the word used intended by God to reach a fairly small group of people. So when we think about the Easter message, we hear Jesus singing and shouting out in the congregation and Jesus resurrected says all the families of the earth have got to hear this. And when I sit down at my table today, and I eat a little ham, a little potato, and I got a roast on the Traeger right now. You know, I'm going to sit down with my family. I'm going to look around this table. And we're going to hold hands and we're going to pray and we're going to thank the Lord that this incredible rescue mission that we read of in Psalm 22 made it all the way to the Rogers family in Oregon 2,000 years later. And you can rejoice the same for yourself. Isn't that incredible? And so us four no more shut the door becomes praise God 
that he saved our family. Everyone's got to hear this. Let's get going. Do you sense the missionary heart of God in the Psalms? Oh, you guys, I wish I just had the whole afternoon to be with you guys, but I got to hurry up. Let's be honest. But you might notice in this missionary uh, verse, verse 27, we see that they will remember. This speaks of reflection, like the prodigal who came to himself. When the ends of the earth hear this, one day they're going to remember what Jesus has done. What did we do today at the communion table? We took some juice and some bread and we did something. We remembered the body and the blood of Jesus sacrificed for us that we could be forgiven. And like the prodigal son who sat at the trough eaten with the pigs and he sat there with the pods and he goes, what am I doing? I could be at home right now with dad and with my brother eating the fatted calf and clothed and and I'm, I, my sin has brought me to this point, but I remember there is a home. And if I just go and I just humble myself before my dad, maybe he'll let me be one of his slaves. And do you know the story? Do you know that when he went home, his dad saw him coming from a long way off and his dad started running for him and he embraced him and he praised the God that, that his son once was lost, but now is found. And he put clean robes on him and gave him his signet ring and killed the fatted calves and had a great celebration. And that's exactly what happens to those who remember there's a father waiting for you. The verse says, not only will they remember, but they'll turn to God. Turning to God speaks of repentance. It's when the prodigal son was eaten with the pigs and he's just like, it's time to go. And I wonder if for you today on this Easter Sunday, you might say, it's time to go home. It's time to come back to Jesus. And finally, they'll worship holy service where God is adored. We're just going through verse 31, which is the end of the Psalm. Lucky for you. And we're going to hurry up here for the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. Verse 28, you might underline that missionary spot that he rules over the nations All that's going on right now that really seems a bit of a J curve for America, right? Like, we're going down hot, everybody, right? And we know how the story ends. We don't exactly see a whole lot of red, white, and blue in the eagle stores. And Toby Keith isn't played in heaven on the radio, you know, or whatever. But maybe, or maybe, I don't know, you know. But maybe America is right here. But what God is doing in the world's picture is going to go like this. And we're part of that kingdom. Amen. And all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. That shows that the rich and the great people aren't shut out from this as well. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even those who cannot keep himself alive. So all of those who, man, they're on that downward trajectory of the the J curve. They're going down to the dust. Maybe right now, does that feel like you in your current circumstances and in your life? You're like, I've already hit the ground. I'm eating dirt. I'm so low. And the Lord is going to raise you up out of that. Even those, is there anybody here at the end of that verse? Even those who cannot keep themselves alive. Anybody, you've really been trying. You've been doing P90X every day. 20 years ago, you did it for 90 days. And now you haven't done anything. So, okay. You know, just Tony Horton is that guy, right? Who's like, I will never age and I will never die. And you're like, hate to tell you, but you know, the hair club for men is starting to show. Okay. You know. Maybe ease in the color. Okay. Okay. Anyways, 
But Tony, love him. I don't have, I have the six pack because of Tony Horton, everybody. He's going to die one day, right? All of the strong, all of the rich, all of those, you can't keep yourself from dying, but there's hope for you. You can partake in what Jesus has done on Easter. Verse 30, a posterity shall serve him. And it will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. You know, before I studied Psalm 22, I didn't know what posterity meant. Uh, I never used it in common language and usage. Maybe you never have either. But once I studied Psalm 22, I love this word and what it means in God's plan of reaching the entire world with salvation. A posterity speaks of a future generation and the descendants and the seed of a person. A generation will serve Jesus. It will be recounted to the next generation what God has done. Because the old, old story of Jesus and his love will be recounted from generation to generation to generation. Spurgeon said, as one generation is called to its rest, another will arise in its stead. He will reckon the ages by the succession of the saints and set his accounts according to the families of the faithful. And then our last verse, you can breathe easy. We are bringing it in for a landing. And then we'll pick it back up again. No, I'm just kidding. Last verse. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. You guys, these verses are so exciting. Seeing what came forth out of the resurrection and it was the resurrection Jesus said, he said, go and make disciples who make disciples, who make disciples, who make disciples, generation after generation after generation. Uh, A a posterity will serve him and that generation will recount it to the next generation. And then verse 31, they'll come and they're going to go and they're going to declare his righteousness to a people who haven't even been born yet. What do we see here right now in this room? I mean, we got some, we got some seasoned saints in the room, but I don't think anybody was alive back when David wrote this 4,000 years ago. People who haven't even been born yet are going to hear what Jesus has done. And what are they going to hear? This final five words that he has done this. It's very final, isn't it? That he has done this. That's the end of the chapter. Oh my goodness, the first 21 verses, it's all about the crucifixion. It's all about the agony of the cross. Oh, but then Jesus, he's heard. You've heard me. I'm resurrected. As I'm coming back, I'm bringing leading captivity captive. And now I'm in the presence of all my brothers and we're worshiping the father for his faithfulness to the afflicted. And we see that suffering doesn't have the final word. Death doesn't have the final word. Your heart will live forever We tell it to the next generation. We tell it to our kids and their children that the church will never have an ending. This verse tells us because of the faithfulness of the saints to bring up the next generation. And what are we telling them? He's done it. Or the Hebrews translated, it is finished. Have you heard it before? It's finished. You're gonna have the worship team come on up. Today is kind of a special day because we're having baptisms. And, you know, there's something really special about the baptisms today. A lot of times we just have kind of open baptism. Anyone can come up and be baptized, and that's true for you today as well. I'll explain in a minute. 
But this week we've had so many people contacting us that they want to get baptized. It's been really exciting. And a number of these baptisms today are children. And, you know, that's a little bit of a taboo thing within the church. Like, oh, you know, probably shouldn't let the kids do it. They probably don't know what they're doing, you know, or whatever. And, and, uh, and then you hear Jesus in the back, like, let the little children come to me. Oh, but you know, and, and I get it. There's, there's a little bit of wisdom in that, in the sense of, do they understand what Jesus has done? Do they know what they're doing? There's no biblical age of like, this is the age that one may be baptized. So sometimes, you know, we, we got a little six-year-old that comes up. I want to be baptized. You know, it's like, okay, we'll explain to you a little bit here. And I was so excited today. My son was eight years old. He was baptized today, Titus. And what's so exciting about the little kids getting baptized right now is we have Psalm 22 and these last couple of verses coming to life in front of our very eyes. We have the next generation. One day I'm not going to be able to do this anymore. We've got the next generation that's coming up saying, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. Do you love him? Do you know that he died on the cross for your sins? Do you want to live for him? Do you know that he has a plan for you to live for him out in this world and to tell people, yeah, I know, dunk me, let's get it over with. I'm going to live for him. Okay. <laughs> Maybe mom can talk to you about your attitude a little bit later, but no, I'm kidding. <laughs> you know? And so it is so thrilling to see the next generation. My son is uh, 16 years old and he's leading worship and he's up later than I am now reading through the Bible I'll walk out to get water and he's reading through the Old Testament right now. He's leading worship. He's teaching Bible studies. He's teaching the youth. It's the grace of God that the Lord would, you know, Russell sees me. Russell knows pastor dad is just a man. It's the grace of God. If any of my kids have any faith in Jesus Christ and God is so gracious that the next generation in the Rogers home, they're lovers of Jesus. I pray that for your home as well. But today what we're doing, you guys, as we go towards baptism is we are essentially visibly dramatizing up on this stage, the J curve. Okay. Romans chapter six tells us that when we come to Jesus, we, we are uniting ourselves to him by faith. We're saying I'm with Jesus and we're saying so much so that the old Rory that loved to sin and was in rebellion against God and did it my way, lust, covet, cheat, steal, lie, dishonor God, not value the Sabbath or the Sunday. Sunday was fun day and Sunday's my day. And you know what? Frankly, it's all mine and I'm doing it my way. Well, when I come to Jesus and Jesus so graciously got a hold of me, I said, you know what? That old Rory was crucified with Jesus and buried with Jesus. And Romans says that we're buried with Jesus in baptism. And that would be sad if that's just how the story ended, right? It'd be like ending Psalm 22 at verse 21, part A. But no, Romans says, oh, but if we're united together with him in the likeness of his death and burial, then certainly we're united with him in the power of his resurrection. And so that's what we're living out up here, you guys. We're showing the church, friends, family, and the world I've decided to follow Jesus. You guys knew the old me. You need to know now he or she is dead. But there's a new born again me 
that's here to live for Jesus and to honor him and has the hope of heaven and the hope of resurrection, life, and power. And so we're going to open up the baptism. Some of you have called me and talked to me during the week and wonderful. You're ready to do it. You got your board shorts on and everything, you know, others, either you've been a Christian your whole life. We had a girl get baptized first service, probably 20 years old, been a Christian her whole life, never has been baptized. And maybe you've just been putting it off, putting it off, putting it off. And I will tell you that if you just kind of put it off and wait for the perfect day when grandma happens to be here and you're not wearing your Easter clothes and you didn't overdo the mascara or whatever, you know, that day will never come. It's just procrastination. It gets put off and off. And God in his mercy and his grace is saying, hey, today I've called you to be baptized and to obey. And I believe that if you would obey in this little thing that seems so silly, doesn't it? It's just so silly and I mean, come on, you're going to do a dunk tank at the church, you know, and, and just going to get your, your makeup in there and your, your clothes are going to be all wet and squishy squashy as you get out. And just got, I don't think so. I believe that if you can obey Jesus in the little first thing, the elementary principle that he calls you to as a Christian that says, hey, will you get wet in front of people for me? Then he is going to just launch you into a life of living for him. You got to be faithful in the small things and he'll make you ruler over much. You got to humble yourself and become like a little child. So maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You've never been baptized. The Ethiopian eunuch asked Philip, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? And Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. Didn't say, oh, you know, make sure you got your whole family there. We got it on video. We got the right angles. You got your swimsuit on. You got your towel. It's going to be hot outside. You can stay warm. Like all these situations just will never happen just right. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And maybe today is a day that, you know what? You walk through those doors. You are unregenerate. You were not saved. The wrath of God towards sinners was upon you. And you have been hearing about a savior who loved you so much that he laid his life down and spilled his blood as a sacrifice for your sins. He was a substitute that took your place and the wrath of God that was supposed to be on you. Now it's upon Jesus. And you've heard today that if you would trust in Jesus, he'll forgive you of your sins. He won't remember your sins anymore. As far as the East is from the West, that's how far he'll remove your transgression from you. And you can walk out of this place today, know that you are clothed in righteousness. And with that, what a wonderful thing it would be in Easter 2023 to be born again and to boldly come up on this stage and to show the whole church and your friends and your family in the world that old me that you guys knew, today he's dead. There's a new life that he has for me. It takes courage, it takes strength. Here is water. I know for me, there's times like this in my life and it even applied to my baptism where I sensed the Lord. It was more of a sense. I don't know what, what do you call it? If you have a sense about something and then you amplify it where your heart is just, this guy is talking to me. And I would just encourage you to let that heartbeat pump the blood to your legs and just pop you up. 
and just put one foot in front of the other and just get up here. Well, I'll see you coming. I'll help you up. Okay. Today, if you hear his voice, obey and watch what the rest of your life is like. He has answered me. He's alive. Let's celebrate it. Come forward for baptism during the next thing. We've got three songs planned. So it'll be about three songs worth of time and some kids will be coming and join us. The water's here. We've got towels and we'd love to celebrate your salvation with you.